You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. you'll take your Bibles and turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, and Lord willing, we'll look at verses 22 through 25 this morning, Exodus chapter 21, and we're going to teach through verses 22 through 25. Also, I want to encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, please pull out the insert provided for you in your bulletin. A copy of the Scriptures will be provided for you. Um, We want to make sure that you uh, can check that we are teaching the Bible, God's Word to you. Uh, Also, if you have a smartphone and you can download the YouVersion Bible app, that's Y-O-U version. Uh, After you download it, you can go to the More tab tap events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, uh, then you can click on today's sermon title and there all the notes, quotes, and references uh, will be uh, available on your phone to see, save, and share, all right? Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 through 25, I want to preach to you a, a single sermon, not in a series, on the subject of Reverend Warnock's position. Reverend Warnock's position. I have several things that I need to say before I actually get into the gist of my sermon is to preface the following things. Number one, I have no personal issue with Reverend Warnock. All right, it's important to that. I want to make a uh, distinguishing remark about his position on a certain subject. Number two, that subject being the topic of abortion. Now, before you turn me off, I do want to tell you two things about that. Number one, in the month of January, generally the third Sunday of the month of January, the Southern Baptist Convention, which we affiliate with, we're a Southern Baptist church, has a Sunday that's uh, entitled The Sanctity of Life. And we as as ministers, uh, if they choose to do so, try to um, equip the congregation to think about the ethics of abortion. Now, what I want you to know, you say, Josh, why are you talking about the subject of abortion the first Sunday of the month of the year? Two reasons. Number one, we are going to address it this month. I always make a stance to address the subject of abortion one way or the other. Here's what I felt was unfair, is to... To however the vote goes down this coming week, if you haven't realized, because my mailbox has been stuffed, slammed through with politicians' emails about uh, all the voting that's supposed to take place January the 5th. Everybody know what I'm talking about? If you don't, I don't know what state you have been living in, all right? But here's what I felt was not uh, bold at all, is to let the election go down. Uh, you stay at least biblically uninformed on one of the points in a in a position's or in a politician's platform, and and here, if the vote doesn't go the way you want it to go, it just seems like Christians complain, and I just don't think that's fair. So you might as well hear it before it could be a complaint. All right. Um, and the last thing is this, and this is what's more more important than all those other things, is there's only been two subjects that I've preached on in which people have walked out. This subject, and ironically, deacons. Um, (laughs) It should 
show you how I feel about deacons in a good way, all right? I'm very passionate about it. But here's what I need you to hear from the very get-go. I've learned not to bury this in my sermon. If you're watching online or if you're here today and you've had an abortion, personally, I hold no ill will against you. And then I need you to understand this. We have a God who sent a Savior who shed his precious blood, which is more valuable than anything ever created in existence, to forgive and cleanse us from any and all sin, including abortion. I need you to hear that. And I want you to understand this. Biblically, our Lord and Savior taught in Matthew chapter 5 to utter the word idiot or moron to devalue another person made in the image of God. God considers us murderers. Right? So I need you to understand. I don't think there's a second class for people who are murderers or those who have committed abortion and then people who uh, devalue the image of God by verbal abuse. According to God's standard, we're all murderers. We all are. So what I want to encourage you to do encourage you to do is do the same thing we've all done is to come on our knees confessing sin and seek the mercy and grace of God in Christ's name that's the only hope you have so I want you to understand what I'm about to share with you is not uh, a, a pastor preaching from moral high ground all right I'm here to teach the Bible to you the Bible is the truth I don't own it I don't possess it in that sense now let's discuss this Reverend Warnock who is running the U for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, claimed in August in a podcast interview that abortion is, quote, consistent with his belief as a minister and vowed to fight to keep it legal if he wins the election. I think that's a fair synopsis of his statement and his stance. The Southern Baptist Convention, as I mentioned, addresses the sanctity of life every year on the third Sunday of January. And I just simply want to move that up and address it today in the context in which we're in. I want to be also transparent so that when you read articles on your social media and you hear about evangelicals and especially Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists have not always been pro-life. Very much so in the 60s and 70s, we were pro-choice. In fact, in the Roe v. Wade case, one of the one of the, the defense lawyers or lawyers was a Southern Baptist, right? So I want to be clear. I also would say this is I thank God that we can reform and change. The Southern Baptist Convention was also built on slavery, right? So we want to continue to bring our beliefs back to the Bible and look for renewal and change, okay? Now, two weeks ago, here's the, the part I found striking. This is not Reverend Warnock speaking. This is in December 21st of 2020, an opinion contributor of The Hill, and he's got a really interesting name, and I don't mean that in any uh, derogatory fashion. It's Merrick Von Renenkamp, I think I said that correct, wrote an article entitled, Pro-Choice Pastors Like Raphael Warnock Have the Bible and History on Its Side. Now, to be frank to you, I about fell out of my chair when I read it, and I was and not because of what was being said, it was what was left unsaid. And I have found this, if you haven't realized this about the media, sometimes it's not about what is said, but the context that's just absolutely left out. And I know that's just an unfair statement about the position. And, and, and I want you to know this, Reverend Warnock has not necessarily clarified how he, how he sees the Bible or history playing into his decision. So I'm not, I don't want to attack him. That's not the point. But is his position, quote, consistent with the Bible and history? Is Renenkamp's article consistent with what the Bible says and history? Is it true? Does the pro-choice position have the Bible and history on its side? And here's objection number one that, uh, Renan Kemp wrote about, and you'll see this in any type of kind of social media piece, is that the Bible does not mention abortion. And I used to say this, um, I used to be rattled by this, in the sense of somebody would come to me, this is when I was in high school, I was still preaching and teaching, 
and they would come to me about a specific doctrine and say, like, Josh, the Trinity is not in the Bible. Josh, the, doc, the, the, the words original sin is not in the Bible, okay? And you would go, if you went to the back of your index in your Bible right now and tried to find the word abortion, in all transparency, you will not find it, okay? And here's what I want you to write down, write this down. There is no indication that premeditated abortion was tolerated in ancient Israel. Just write that down, and it'll become important in a minute. There's no indication that premeditated abortion was tolerated in ancient Israel. Sometimes, and we'll see this in the ministry of Jesus, I'll hear this a lot when I talk about the subject of homosexuality, well, Jesus never addressed homosexuality. And this is where we rob the words or things that are even left unsaid in the Bible from its context, okay? Not to say that homosexuality wasn't uh, an issue at all in the first century, but among Palestinian uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, homosexuality fell very clearly under sexual immorality. To discuss sexual immorality encompassed all forms of immorality. And here's what you have to understand. When we talk about the subject of abortion, abortion is not specified because, quite frankly, it's unthinkable for the covenant people of God, all right? And would have clearly fell into murder. Now, let me explain. You say, how can we say that for the Old Testament that doesn't have a thou shalt not commit abortion, right? That's what we're saying. There is no verse like that. How can we infer from the text, just like we do with the doctrine of the Trinity, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you'll see the Trinity described in the Bible. How do we infer that the ancient Jews would have understood that abortion is a sin and a murder? Let me explain. The most significant thing about abortion legislation in biblical law, the Mosaic law, is that there is none. It was so unthinkable that an Israelite woman should desire an abortion, there was no need to mention this offense in the criminal code. Now, why is this important? Behind each discussion is assumed a basic Jewish orientation to life. The duty and desire to populate the earth. Now, you've got to remember this. When Genesis was written, it's written actually to the nation of Israel that Moses freed from Egypt. Remember, that's the first audience. As they're reading Genesis 1 and 2 for the first time, remember the commands to Adam? What was he to do? Replenish, multiply the earth all over the whole earth. Then as you follow the Bible down all the way to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where people refuse to scatter over the world, right? God uh, disseminates them, puts them, scatters them all across. Then he pulls out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is the father of all the Israelites. And God makes him a promise. Anybody remember what that promise is? A land and what? A nation. So you understand that the very concept, okay, of trying to diminish the Jewish population is antithetical to how the covenant runs in the Old Testament. All right? They want a robust population. All right? So there's not going to be any type of mitigation, especially deliberate taking of life in this context. The duty and desire was to populate the earth and ensure both Jewish survival and the divine presence. Second, a deep sense of the sanctity of life as God's creation, a respect extending in various ways to life in all of its manifestations and stages. And finally, a profound horror of blood and bloodshed. These things undergird the entire Jewish approach to abortion. You'll see it more explicitly stated this way, the shedding of innocent blood. And that encapsulates all kinds of taking of life made in the image of God. As we observed at the outset, induced abortion was so abhorrent to the Israelite mind, it was unnecessary to have a specific prohibition dealing with it in the Mosaic law. So here's the question. And this actually kind of runs both ways. So your people who say it's consistent with the Bible say there's no mention of abortion in the Bible. And then at the same time, the people on the, on the other side can say, well, there's also no positive affirmation of abortion either. 
So where is it biblically consistent? Where do they find a, a kind of a foothold in the Bible to say that abortion is a part of reproductive justice? And here's where it's found. Here's ground zero text, right? And it's probably a text I would have never selected apart from, apart from a day like today. It's Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. Now, this is what's important to note. Exodus 19, God has uh, met with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. All right, he comes down in thunder and fire. And he's speaking out the commands, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The people are afraid okay, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they go, how about we let Moses be our intercessor? Let him go up and get the law so you're not screaming at us the whole time, all right? They're scared to death, and they like, that's a great idea, and so they ask that Moses would be the intercessor. So in Exodus 21, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to meet with God and receive additional laws, which quite frankly, the additional laws all hang on the Ten Commandments. They're explanations of what the Ten Commandments are. And God begins to specify criminal negligence. Or think of it this way. We have a, a crime that's considered manslaughter, right? It's not first degree premeditated murder, right? But it's where someone dies and it's essentially the intention was an accident. There was no intention for the person to be killed. Notice what the law has to say and addresses. This is under this, the subject of criminal negligence. Verse 22. When men get in a fight, and I, first of all, I just appreciate that the God of Israel didn't even say if. When, right? When men fight, notice what happens. And hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury. The one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give his life, give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. All right. Now, a couple of things about this verse. There are two sets of interpretations. There is a pro-choice interpretation, which envisages this passage in a couple of ways. Here's how. And I, I don't want to say that if you're pro-choice, you have to view it this way. I'm saying this is what the pro-choice adoption of the interpretation is. Is that there is a miscarriage in this uh, uh, passage. So what happens, these men are struggling and fighting. They accidentally hit this pregnant lady and she miscarries. Alright? Um, and notice how they settle the issue for the miscarriage. It would be what? A monetary payment. Everybody got me? Or they conceive of the scenario this way. In addition to the miscarriage, the woman then also suffers a personal injury or she dies and then the penalty prescribed is some form of capital or corporal punishment. Like if her arm's injured, they injure the arm of uh, the assailant. Life for life for the woman. And what they're wanting to distinguish here is notice how there is a monetary form of payment for the life of the child where there is an actual physical punishment for physically injuring the woman. Everybody understand? See the difference? So they interpret the born prematurely as harm was done to the child in the womb and caused a miscarriage. Now, the pro-life interpreters, and these are, and I want to be truly fair. These are both equally valid given the linguistics of the Hebrew, but you can interpret them this way. It has that semantic range. Pro-life interpreters see it like you do here. The CSB is a Southern Baptist Bible, so they go ahead and tip your hat to how they interpret the word. They just simply see the child as being prematurely born. Labor is induced early. The child is born prematurely, and notice what happens. The child is healthy and alive, but there still has to be some justice done for the accident. And it's a monetary uh, type of assessment. And then the, the same would follow with the mother. We understand that the mother, if she's injured, then life for life. And we would actually go so far to say is this, if the, if the child comes out injured, then the same life for life would apply. So if the child comes out and he's maimed in some form, there would have been physical punishment as well. 
Now, we're inferring those things from the text because there's a, there is some ambiguity about the, the miscarriage or prematurely born. Now, how are we supposed to settle that debate, right? How do you interpret it? And the best way I think that you can at least understand that I still think this is a pro-life passage actually has to do with the professor Meredith Klon and his take on this passage. So notice the word here, and this is important. He's going to look to something else in the text for some insight, and it has to do with the context. Notice how it says, but there is no injury. The one who hit her must be fine. He must be fine as the woman's husband demands from him. If you underline in your Bible, the, the, the part that Klein wants to emphasize is what the husband demands from him. What he wants to note, and this is true, this demand is not arbitrary. This is not arbitrary. This is actually a legal action. And let me explain it because it's also in the text. Drop down to verse 28. So this is another instance of criminal negligence. And so if you don't know, I know this is, we're wading into deep waters today. What you want to understand is the Mosaic law is generally built around uh, uh, commands, but then criminal cases in which these commands are to be applied. All right, so there is a sanctified imagination that you need to use to kind of understand what's going on. Judge still presided over these cases. But notice what happens in verse uh, 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, this ox must be stoned. You've got to put it to sleep, right? And its meat may not be eaten, but the ox's owner is innocent. Right? Let me just give you a modern day uh, you know, transliteration of what would happen. You own a dog and it bit somebody, right? Mosaic law says you got to put it down, right? Shedding of innocent blood, you got to keep them under wraps. Now, look at verse 29. However, if the ox was in the habit of goring and its owner had been warned and yet does not restrain it. Now, did you catch this? Notice now there's some culpability on the owner. He's been told, your dog runs off and it bites people. We've seen it. You put that thing on a leash, and he still doesn't put it on a leash, right? Notice what happens. And it kills a man or a woman. The ox must be stoned, and its owner must also be put to death. Why? He had been warned. He had been made culpable for that ox's actions. <laughs> now notice this, and this is what Klein wants to emphasize. If instead... A ransom is, notice this word, demanded. If a ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption price for his life and the full amount demanded from him. Now notice what God understands. Like he, the God of Israel gets this. Yes, he is culpable, but there is not this premeditated murder. He didn't send the ox or the dog out like, go get Ricky, <laughs> right? That's not what happened. And so he kind of gives this clause to say this. They can live, but they have to pay a ransom price for their life. And it's ba the demand is based off the judicial assessment. It's essentially this. What is the, the, the legal worth of a life? Okay? And whatever that maximum is, that person, that husband who lost his wife in this accident, can go to that man and says, it's either being stoned to death or you can pay me this. You can settle, and they can settle. Now, let's take that word demand in its legal sense and go back and apply it to the issue of whether it's a miscarriage or just prematurely born. Notice this. It doesn't matter then because what the husband gets the right to do is he gets the right to look at that person and go, I demand the full amount. I want a ransom price for what you've done. Do you see then all of a sudden because there's this degree of culpability. Two guys are fighting. They may have saw a woman there. They hit her and little did they know what? She was with child. There's these other degrees that they're not aware of. And so they can, they can in effect, the husband can go, look, I know you didn't know this, but my, my lost my child because of this. You will pay the full ransom price. And at that point, what have they done? They've elevated the life of a child to the life of anybody else. And so what I would encourage you to see here is, first of all, this text does nothing, first of all, with deliberate abortion. Nothing. This is about criminal negligence of the nth degree. 
This crazy accident happens, and nevertheless, a husband could go out to the person who's responsible for this and demand a ransom price for that child. It shows you, it shows you the value of the life that's put on this unborn child. Now, let's go to the next thing. Or write this down so make sure you see this. Exodus 22 gives only implicit evidence for the question of willful abortion. I would also say, I would not be the one to look at this text and say, this is the text that you should decide on whether the Bible is for or against abortion. Because quite frankly, you're pigeonholing the text to do something, it's not meant to function that way. The function's about criminal negligence. It's a case study. All right? But it's implicit. Objection number two that's given is that the first Christians had divergent views on abortion. All right? That, okay, the Bible, the Bible isn't consistent, and Christian history, church history, isn't consistent with a pro-life stance. This is the part where I about fell out of a chair. I know this to be absolutely patently false. Because when you go and you click on, the one thing that I like about Renenkamp is this, is that he at least cites his sources. So you can go and see where he's getting his information from. And what he says, and this is true, is that St. Augustine in the 400s was the first one to posit, really, that there is a distinction between a formed fetus and an unformed fetus, and then therefore different laws apply. And so he could see how abortion would be uh, you know, allowed in the context of church. The issue that I have with this is, is two things. Number one, you just threw out the first 400 years of church history. Okay, here's what I want you to see and write this down in response to me. In early Christianity, abortion is prohibited. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. All right, it doesn't change until the 400s with Augustine. And I'll explain why he changed his view. Okay, while the apologists, these are people who give a defense of the Christian faith, praise Christians' refusal to imitate uh, pagan practice, Hippolytus, notice he lived circa 170, about 170 A.D. in the year of our Lord. He knew the subtle Roman influence of the church and the church's failure to criticize that influence. Pope Callistus himself approved of a Roman law allowing concubine marriages, even though such marriages often resulted in unwanted pregnancies. After 222, so 222 circa A.D., all right, Hippolytus wrote about the effects of Callistus's uh, laxity. So notice, so the Pope pretty much says you can marry concubines. This results in unwanted pregnancies. This Christian apologist Hippolytus goes, I got something to say about that. And listen to what he writes. Women, reputed believers, began to resort to drugs for producing sterility and to gird themselves round so to expel what was being conceived on account of their not wishing to have a child either by a slave or by any paltry fellow for the sake of their family and excessive wealth. Behold, into how great impiety that lawless one has proceeded by inculculating adultery and murder at the same time. Oh, but the early Christian church had divergent views. What? That's just not true. Look at this one. This is Cyprian. And he's around 200 uh, as well. I don't mean years old, I'm saying in the year 200 uh, A.D. Orthodox belief and practice were closely re related for Cyprian. The popular writer was not at all surprised to learn that Novation, Novation's a false teacher, he's a heretic, all right, was not only schismatic, dividing the church, but also was immoral. He was abusing widows, orphans, his own father, and even his wife. And so Cyprian, a Christian apologist, calls out Novation. You ready? And listen to what he cites about Novation. Uh, he says this, The womb of his wife was smitten by a blow of his heel, and in the miscarriage that soon followed, the offspring was brought forth, the fruit of a father's murder. And now he dares to condemn the hand of those who sacrifice when he himself is more guilty in his feet by which the son who was about to be born was slain. Here's this false teacher who's saying, look at all these pagan sacrifices in the temple. And Cyprian going, you're no better. You murdered your own child. This was not tolerated 
in the early church. And then here's, the, here's what I knew for sure, that I knew why it wasn't tolerated in the early church is because of this do- document, the didache. That's where we get our word didactic from. It means the teaching, all right? And it was actually one time considered for the canon, all right? But it was, this is written by the generation of disciples that followed the apostles, all right? Generation one or two after. The important part that I need to know this, scholars debate the dating of the didache, but they know this, it was pre-Augustine. This is what they do know. It's before late 300s or early 400s. And here's why this is important. So the didache was a synopsis of early Christian teaching of the 12 apostles. And listen to how this is worded. It's in didache chapter 2, verse 2. And in an exposition on the second great commandment. So there's a little exposition on the second great commandment. What's the second great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And they're like, we got a couple of points of application we'd like to add under that. And here's what they write. They said the author lists prohibitions modeled on the Ten Commandments. So he starts to list the Ten Commandments. And when it gets to thou shalt not murder, it specifies Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or destruction. They got that specific. And notice how they viewed this. This is what's so beautiful. And this is how I think the church should address this. Is that child who's developing in the womb is our neighbor. That's the way. Where's personhood at? That was never. That's my neighbor. That's my neighbor. And I protect my neighbor. That's how the church has really always viewed this. It's an issue of neighborly love. Fascinating. So why does Augustine get divergent views? So I've told you about this uh, translation, the Septuagint, it's often called the 70, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right, And your early church fathers, like Augustine, read this Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament. All right, So you have the Hebrew text and then a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. When the, when the 70 scholars, 70 or 72 scholars, they were Jewish scholars who were translating the he, uh, from the Hebrew into the Greek, they were aware of Plato and Aristotle's ideas concerning whether a formed fetus or unformed fetus constituted life and personhood. When they go to translate um, Exodus 30, it's from this text, Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, the word where it says harm, they interpret form and unform. And, and people will tell you this. That's not a good translation. But they're imposing on the text the conversation of the day. They're wanting to see into this text what it is that has to be said about whether life is present in formed or unformed fetuses. So when Augustine reads Exodus 21, 22 through 28 in his Septuagint, his Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the text says formed and unformed. And being a good biblical scholar, he makes his theology based off the Bible and the interpretation. Augustine's the one ultimately responsible, but it's due to the interpretation which on. And by and large, the Septuagint is a good translation, but there's this one time where it is not. So I need you to see this. People who talk about it's in the Bible. Yes, it's in a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. All right, uh, but it's imposed on the text when the words aren't there, and theology was formed off. Of, much of our theology was formed off of the, the Septuagint there, and so that's in, in all, I guess, transparency. That's where it comes from. It diverges with Augustine's use of the Septuagint in formulating his understanding of life. Now, so what, <laughs> right? So what? Let me give you this, and I'll be done. This is what I think Christians have to be careful with. We make statements, and I make statements like this, the Bible says, right? And when we say the Bible says, like, for instance, life begins at conception, right? The Bible says abortion is murder. To be frank, what we also need to understand is how people hear that is they're assuming you have book, chapter, verse, right? That's what they assume when you say the Bible says. And what you realize, church, and this, the church has done this for millennia 
is that there's a lot of doctrines like the Trinity. It's a tier one doctrine to deny the Trinity is to put you outside of orthodoxy. You're not even a Christian. And yet if you told me the Bible says God is triune and you said book, chapter, verse, there's not like a single one. What does it happen? Because the Bible describes this concept and then men are doing theology. Well, what is it saying in its totality? We've got to make a statement about what all is being described. And then they'll say this, the Bible says God is triune. But it's based on what we call systematic theology. It's considering the entire canon, the whole of the Bible, not just one book, chapter, verse. So if we had to do a systematic theology of why we protect the unborn, it would have to be something like this, and you have to scour the Bible, okay? You're not going just to one instance. Number one, write this down. The image of God is passed on humanly, all right? Through intercourse, the image of God is passed on. Notice what Genesis 5, 3 says. Adam, and we know this, if you know your Bible at all, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam was made in whose image? God's. And then notice what it says in Genesis 5, 3. Adam fathered a son, the verb, fathered a child, in his own likeness and according to his image. Now let me ask you this real quick. How do I know that you and I are actually made in the image of God? You know how? We all descended from Adam, who was what? Made in the image of God. And he passes on, because here's what we don't think about. We think about just its physicality. The Bible conceives of the person holistically, body and soul. Right? And you even have your moral nature is a part of you as a part of the image of God. He passes, and we'll also that he passes that on to you too for good and evil. All right? So you're made in the image of God, but you were not made immediately from the image of God. You were made mediately through Adam in the image of God. The second thing is this number, <laughs> number two, our sinful nature is passed on seminally. Here's the other part. This is why I know we're made in the image of God, because the Bible is clear about this. We are children of wrath born in sin. We are rebels in the womb. We're hostile to God. All right? Listen to what it says in Psalm 58.3. David, the psalmist, laments, the wicked are estranged from the womb, separated from God at birth, or at conception, excuse me. They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. It's the truth. I have yet to teach any of my children how to lie to me. Isn't it the truth? Oh, they know how to lie. It's built into them. It's a part of that sinful nature. And when was it built into them? The moment they were conceived. We conceived a sinner. Right? And then number three, we are in a state of sin at the time of conception. I want to make it even more clear. In Psalm 51.5, this is an amazing psalm, uh, David is tracing his sin with Bathsheba. Are you ready? So he commits an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then goes on to murder her husband so that he can be with her and cover it up. And he begins to repent and he begins to kind of go back over his life and say, where did my sin issue begin, right? He's going he's gonna to confess all the sin. And notice what it says in Psalm 51.5. In tracing the origin of his sin with Bathsheba, he said this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He said, as soon as I came out the womb, essentially this, I was already heading toward this day with Bathsheba. And he's not blaming it. He's taking responsibility going, I am a sinner through and through. And so here's what I want us to see here. We conclude from, notice this, not book, chapter, verse, but from the Bible. Okay, that's why we, what we said. Taking the, the teachings of the Bible into consideration, we conclude that the image of God is already present in the fetus and therefore according to... That they're created in the image of God 
and are afforded the life protected to every human. So here's the part, and this was actually what was, I've read this in certain articles, quote, the Bible does not actually say anything at all on the topic on abortion. On this issue, there is no divine revelation to be had. That is false. <laughs> if you're saying, is there a book, chapter, verse? No, there's not, thou shalt not commit abortion, or life begins at, no, there's not that. We're looking at the Bible in its entirety as a whole and saying, this is the theology. This is the doctrine. In fact, Renenkamp actually says this at the end of his article. He says that the pro-life position is, quote, theologically unfounded. That is an utter falsehood. It is consistent with the Bible and the earliest Christians did believe it. So write this down. Given the whole of the Bible, the fetus is made in the image of God and so should be protected. Given the whole of the Bible, the fetus is made in the image of God and so should be protected. Here's the takeaways. There is no indication that premeditated abortion was tolerated in ancient Israel. That's why you don't find a specific law stating its prohibition in the Mosaic Covenant. It was just quite frankly because of the covenant with Abraham, unthinkable to diminish the population. All right, number two, Exodus 22 only gives implicit evidence to the question of willful abortion. I, I think exegetes would be better off moving away from that text to talk on the subject of deliberate abortion. It's about criminal negligence. Three, in early Christianity, abortion is prohibited. Anybody who tells you otherwise has to give you, cite you something before the year 400. 400. Before 400. And then, given the whole of the Bible, the fetus is made in the image of God and so should be protected. And maybe, church, we need to adopt that type of language instead of said the Bible says, given the whole. Here's the doctrine. So does the pro-choice position have the Bible and history on its side? You write it down. By no means. By no means. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Today, of course, is just a different sermon. These are days when I look at it as this is teaching to equip the saints for doctrinal ministry. And I think, um, again, I, I have nothing personal about Reverend Warnock. I think what disturbs me the most, and I say this with a clear conscience, is to see the Bible in church history said that it's just you know inconceivable or inconsistent with it. And that's just not true. I think as a pastor, minimally, you should have, minimally, you should have biblically informed values and a biblically informed vote and that's all I'm attempting to do today but I, I wish no uh, ill or harm on any of these candidates in fact I pray that whoever's elected will go and serve for the glory of God and for our peace who doesn't want that so here's what I want to do number one I want to go back to the subject whether it's a abortion whether it's hatred whether it's lying, whether it's uh, lust, all of us are sinners. All of us have committed sin, conceived in sin, estranged from God at conception, rebels. And before we could ever do a good thing for God, God demonstrated his love for us by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to forgive all our sin, all of it. And I want to implore you, no matter where you think you fall comparatively to the next guy, before the holy righteousness of God, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you today, I want to summon you to call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. He's not dead. He's alive. He's the Son of God, and here's our thoughts and whispers. And if you're ready to confess you're a sinner and trust Him alone for salvation, then just simply pray to him. Say this, repeating your heart to King Jesus. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner and deserve judgment. But I believe you love me. 
He came down for me. And he died on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. All of it. And God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Come into my life. And be my Savior and God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to encourage you. The next step in your walk of faith to express your love and gratitude for King Jesus and his salvation is to be baptized. That's what the Bible teaches. Baptism shows the church and the world that you believe in Jesus' death for your sin when you go under the water. And you are saying that you believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection for your forgiveness when you come up out of the water. And if you've never been baptized, it's your first evangelistic witness to the church and the world that you believe in confessing Jesus. And I want to encourage you to be baptized. On the back of that carol crown, you can check baptism. You can text believe or text the church number. Go to our website, fill out the form. Give us an opportunity to talk to you about the next step of baptism. Last thing that I want us to do, I don't have any special prayer today. I do want us to do three things. I want you to pray about the unwanted pregnancies in our own community. All right? It's a real thing. And the church, we cannot judge people. All right? We're all sinners. And we need to pray for them. All right? Second thing I would say is this. You do need to go vote. I don't want to place a burden on you. But at the same time, go vote your, your values. All right? And the third thing that I would encourage you to do that I found just fascinating this week as the ERLC, it's the Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. We actually give to it at the part of your offering that you drop in the plate. A percentage of it goes to the ERLC. But one of the special initiatives that they're doing to try to help with this abortion crisis that we have in America, and it is terrible, is they're trying to plant ultrasounds uh, so that women can see their unborn children into you know, places all across the country. And they found out it takes about $26,000 to put an ultrasound in one of these, to place an ultrasound, all right? And uh, so far, they've done 10 in the past year, I think. And every year, they're just trying to do 10 more. And you can actually, this is, I just thought, was a great way uh, to kind of be a part of the solution, is you can go to their website, erlc.com, I think, forward slash donate, and you're looking for the Psalm 139 project. And you can give to that to help place ultrasound machines uh, so, that, that, so that ladies can see their unborn children for free, for free. Um, I would just prayerfully consider that. Will you pray as uh, Stacy leads us in our invitation? Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege to gather here in your name and to hold your word. And Lord, as we enter this another political, politically uh, potentially divisive season, Lord, we just pray first and foremost that we as your, your sons and daughters, as Christians, would honor your name as holy um, in our conversations and our attitudes uh, toward others. We do pray for your kingdom to come. We wait for the saving justice of Jesus 
going to envelop the earth and he sits on the throne. And then, Lord, we pray that your will would be done. Use your church to stand for what is right. And, Lord, again, we, we, we hold no ill will toward anyone. But, Lord, we do want the truth in its context. And we believe that every individual is conceived in your image in need of a Savior. And help us to show that neighborly love to protect the unborn. And then, Lord, to share that neighborly love of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for dying on the cross for all of our sin. May we make much of him here at Mount Carmel. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. Thank you, church, for sticking around. I, I, I appreciate, and I, and I tell people this, we live in an age where we like to reduce truth to a tweet, and sometimes it can be, but then there's something to be said for a long, sustained argument, okay? And so I sincerely appreciate those who will, who will stick around and follow with me, all right? A uh, couple of, of just quick uh, announcements. Number one, please RSVP for church next week, all right? Uh, on the back of your bulletin, you can check the appropriate boxes uh, if you plan to be here. We're just doing our best to uh, social distance um, and pray that this pandemic comes to an end very soon. Uh, but you can RSVP that way. Drop it in the drop box. You can text RSVP to our text and church number or go to our website and click reserve. Um, also, don't forget about Sunday school next week, 10 o'clock in the fellowship hall. Again, if, you, if you're not a part of Sunday school at all, please, we want you to come back and participate with us and fellowship with us. Uh, so be there at 10 o'clock in the fellowship hall. No, uh, no RSVP needed for that. We can distance a lot better in there because we can move chairs around and like pews. Uh, and then also don't forget about the, the Christmas cleanup starting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, from 5 to 8. Uh, come when you can and help us uh, put these uh, Christmas decorations away. And then I'm trying to think, I thought I had, oh, Deacon Elections, Deacon Nominations, the 17th. So not next Sunday, but the next. Uh, please, I am begging you to go home and prayerfully um, uh, consider who you would elect. You're, you're wanting to nominate unordained men in our church who meet the qualifications that are listed there in the bulletin. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today, uh, and I do encourage you to go vote uh, this week. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one last song? Okay, church, I hope your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Amen. Stand together as we sing this first and last verse. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.